God's providence is his active sustenance, that means to sustain, and governance of all things so that his eternally good purposes are accomplished. Welcome to the Manna Bible Lessons Podcast. Manna is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you'd open your Bibles to John 19. John 19, we're going to finish this chapter today, Lord willing, and then uh, next week uh, we'll take a uh, look at the resurrection in John 20. We've been in the Gospel of John for over a year now, hopefully by uh, January uh, of 25 at least we'll be done. We're getting pretty close. Yeah, I've been called out already on this more than once. John wrote the Gospel and he gave the purpose of the writing at the very last chapter. He said, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Which begs the question, what exactly do you, must you believe in order to possess eternal life? The Apostle Paul summarizes the essentials of the gospel, and there's only three of them, in 1 Corinthians 15.3. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, which was a really messed up church, and he said, here's the essentials that you must believe in order to possess eternal life. For I delivered to you as of... First importance, what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So saving faith, the faith that saves, the, the content of that belief is that Jesus Christ died for your sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day as prophesied in the Scriptures. Now next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that is going to require... God directly intervening in space-time history and producing a supernatural miracle. When God produces a supernatural miracle, he overrides natural law, the laws he set in place, and directly intervenes by injecting his supernatural power into the natural world. That's the resurrection. Miracles, just in case you noticed, are rare. They happen seldom in Scripture and seldom before or after Scripture as well. Today, we're going to look at the burial of Jesus Christ, and in contrast to the resurrection, which requires God supernaturally intervening into space-time history, the burial of Jesus Christ doesn't depend on God's miracle, but on God's providence. Let me give you a definitional idea of providence. And this could take weeks just on this topic alone, but we're going to use the burial of Jesus Christ as an illustration of God's providence using everyday circumstances and events. Here's the key idea. God's providence is his active sustenance and governance of all things so that his eternally good purposes are accomplished. Let me give you that again. God's providence is his active sustenance, that means to sustain, and governance of all things, so that his eternally good purposes are accomplished. In miracles, God overrides natural law. 
In providence, God doesn't override natural law. He works through natural law. He accomplishes his will indirectly by working all things together so as to accomplish his purposes inside, within the natural order that he has created. Now, depending on your view of the world, I tend to believe clearly that Scripture teaches that nothing happens by chance. There is no randomness in God's kingdom, God's universe. Every single thing that occurs down to the movement of a subatomic particle, even human free will falls under the scope of God's sovereign, all-wise, and eternally good providence. Miracles are rare. Providence is not rare. It's everywhere. The fact that you're here today is God's providence. The fact that you didn't get in an accident is God's providence. The fact that you had hot water in your home this morning is God's providence. If you didn't have hot water, that's his providence too, right? Deal with it. The burial of Jesus Christ is a clear demonstration of God's providence whereby he uses normal circumstances, human beings, to accomplish his eternal purposes. We know that God's purposes will surely come to pass. Uh, Isaiah 46.10 says, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. This is the will of the Father over his created universe. Let's pick up the narrative in John 19, uh, 31, if you have your Bibles open. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him, but coming to Jesus... When they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Here's the principle. Jesus' physical death was documented by Roman soldiers who were experts in execution. Jesus' physical death was documented by Roman soldiers who were experts in execution. Now, Jesus was put on the cross Friday about 9 a.m., and died at 3 p.m., uh, six hours later. This was precisely on God's eternal schedule. Remember, Jesus had previously said in John 10, 17, I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. So Jesus Christ died precisely on schedule. The truth of it is, most victims of crucifixion lived between 48 and 72 hours hanging on the cross until they died of asphyxiation or dehydration or blood loss. Jesus died in six hours precisely on God's calendar. John, 10, or John uh, tells us in verse 30, just prior to this, he, Christ, gave up his spirit. It wasn't taken from him. He chose the precise moment of his death, and he rendered his spirit back to his heavenly father. Now, the normal Roman procedure in crucifixion is to leave criminals, because you had to be a criminal to be executed. They would leave them on the cross for days and weeks. Uh, normally, they would leave them until vultures and rodents ate most of the rotting body. Uh, if a family member claimed the body, 
they usually were buried in a common grave, unmarked, outside the city walls because you didn't want to defile the family tomb by having someone who's crucified, a criminal, inside the family walls and certainly not in the family tomb. If no family claimed the body, the victim of the crucifixion was often taken to Jerusalem's city dump uh, called the Valley of Hinnom, just outside Jerusalem's southwest wall, and they just dumped them there. That was called Gehenna. Jesus talks about hell a lot more than anybody in Scripture. And his word picture is Gehenna. It's the garbage dump of the city of Jerusalem, and fires burned there continually. That's where they dumped all the garbage, dead animals, dead bodies, human bodies, and he used that continual fire and smoke of Gehenna as an illustration of what eternal hell was like. So everyone was familiar with what Gehenna meant. And that's what they would do with victims of crucifixion where there was no family members. Now the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, at this point have a significant problem. They have hastily tried Jesus, they have hastily crucified him, and they're now running into a clock problem. They have to have all three corpses off the crosses and buried by sunset. And it's now after 3 p.m., sunset's about 6 p.m., the clock is ticking, they have less than three hours to get people off the cross and in the tomb. They had to do that because the Mosaic law specified if anyone is impaled or hung on a tree after their execution, they must not remain there overnight. Deuteronomy 21.22 says, If a man has committed the sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. The Jews calculated time from sunset to sunset. So the beginning of a new day began at sunset. Jesus was crucified on Friday from 9 to 3. That was the day of preparation. Preparation for Shabbat. Preparation for the Sabbath, which was Saturday. Friday is the day before Saturday. By the way, they didn't have names back then. They didn't call days of the week by names. They had the Sabbath. And they calculated time. It was either two days before the Sabbath, three days after the Sabbath, but everything calculated by the Sabbath, that was the metric they used to measure time. Only later did we get into the naming of each day. Now, a Sabbath was a holy day, and a Sabbath during Passover was a very high holy day. It was even more urgent that no corpse remain on the cross after sunset. So, as near as we can tell from the calendar, the Jewish religious leaders go to Pilate, shortly after 3 p.m., and ask for his help. As we mentioned, crucifixion often took two to three days, so when the Romans wanted to speed up death, they would take a heavy iron mallet and they would smash your shins and your femurs, shatter them. I don't know if you ever banged your shin on something. It is enormously painful, really painful. Well, you get a 20-pound sledgehammer and just shatter those shins and the femurs. What that means is you can no longer push up because your legs are shattered. When you can't push up, your diaphragm can't come up, you can't inhale and exhale, and then you asphyxiate fairly quickly. So when your shin bones are shattered, obviously it's massive, sh massive shock, massive blood loss. Um, 
Paradoxically, it's probably merciful because you'd rather die quickly than linger another 24 hours on the cross. So Pilate gave the order to break their legs, and the two criminals crucified with Jesus were still alive. So they, soldiers broke their legs to expedite their death. However, Jesus was already dead. This was incredibly unusual. To die in six hours, most of the time it took two to three days. And one of the soldiers wanted to ensure that Jesus was really dead, so he thrust his spear into Jesus' side, and it says blood and water came out. What that means is that the soldier pierced Jesus' side shortly after death because the blood had not yet coagulated. It was still liquid, and it it flowed out. In case you're wondering, this was not a flesh wound. This wound was big enough to put your hand into. Remember when Jesus met Thomas in the upper room? who didn't believe, he said, Thomas, thrust your hand into my side. I mean, it was fist-sized hole. Do not be faithless about believing. So this was a, uh, would have been a, obviously a mortal wound by itself. So the spear likely pierced the pericardial sac around the heart and the heart itself. When under great stress, the heart muscle can rupture. And when that happens, it spills blood into the pericardium, which of course surrounds the heart and mixes with lymphatic fluid. Today, and it's been called this for some time, we call this broken heart syndrome. And the notion is, like when one spouse dies, a lot of times the surviving spouse, not a lot of times, but occasionally the surviving spouse dies shortly thereafter. Sometimes it's postulated that the stress of losing a spouse can create broken heart syndrome. Interesting that Psalm 69.20 says, quote, Reproach has broken my heart. Interesting. The spear thrust into Jesus' side, John notes as being critically important because he wants to document for the reader that Jesus really was dead. Not almost dead, not kind of dead, dead. He did that because John wrote his gospel probably in 90 AD, and by that time the heresies of Gnosticism and Doceticism were prevalent. Both these heresies deny that Jesus was really flesh and blood. They don't believe that he was a real flesh and blood human being. And the, the, the word dokio in Greek, it means to seem, to appear. So this heresy, Docetism and Gnosticism, they claim that Jesus only seemed to be flesh and blood. I mean, they would say, if he was walking down the beach, he didn't leave any footprints. He looked like a human, but he really wasn't flesh and blood. He didn't really die, he just appeared to die, right? Well, John says, no, 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 there's empirical evidence by multiple witnesses that he really was dead, not just because of crucifixion, but he received, obviously, what would have been a mortal wound, and we've got blood and water coming out. He really, really lived, and he really, really died, and therefore, he really, really rose from the grave. Verse 35. John is speaking of himself here in verse 35, and he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, quote, not a bone of him shall be broken, unquote. And another scripture says, quote, they shall look on him whom they pierced, end quote. Here's the principle. God providentially orchestrated every detail 
so that Jesus' death precisely fulfilled biblical prophecy. God providentially orchestrated every detail so that Jesus' death precisely fulfilled biblical prophecy. John is saying, I am an eyewitness. I was there, and my witnessing is truthful to the events that we're narrating. John was the only disciple who was at the cross, at the foot of the cross, and he was the only disciple who stayed after Jesus died. He observed that Jesus' legs were not broken. He observed that the other two criminals' legs were broken. He witnessed the soldier piercing Jesus' side. He saw the blood and water come out. And he knew that the scripture had prophesied those precise events would occur on God's prophetic schedule. Now, centuries earlier, interesting, the Mosaic law commanded the Israelites to not break any bone of their Passover sacrifice. Remember, this Passover sacrifice, they had to take a lamb on the 10th day of the month. They had to keep it in their house for four days to become attached to it. Then they had to kill the lamb, drain the blood, and roast it whole. But they were not allowed to break any bone of that lamb. In Exodus 12, 46, it, the Passover lamb, is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. God didn't want your throwaways. He didn't want a blemished lamb. He didn't want a, well, I got a lamb that just broke his leg. Let's give that to God as a Passover sacrifice, right? He said, I want your best because I give you my best, my son. Psalm 34, talking about the coming Messiah, predicts not a bone of him shall be broken. Now remember, the Passover was looking forward, the sacrifice of an animal lamb was looking forward to the Lamb of God, right, that takes away the sins of the world. They had been sacrificing lambs during Passover for 1,400 years by the time Jesus came. John the Baptist was the first in the New Testament to say what? He identified Jesus as, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, since Jesus, the Lamb of God, died at 3 p.m., the Roman soldiers did not break his legs to hasten his death. They, completely unaware of God and Scripture, fulfilled Psalm 34, 20, not a bone of him shall be broken. God accomplished his divine purposes that the Passover lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world will not have a bone broken in his body, and he did it through people who were opposed to him, who were literally the ones who had executed his son. God accomplishes his purposes through people opposed him, and he, the same way he accomplishes his purpose through people that support him. His purposes will occur regardless. Proverbs 16.9 says, the mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his step. Here's what that means. It doesn't matter the path you take, God is always ahead of you. You say, well, I'm going to turn left. You think God knew you were going to turn left? Uh-huh. That's part of his providence. God works all things. We know Romans 28, God works all things together for good. He works all things, all circumstances externally and all internal human choices to accomplish his plans, including the wicked evil plan to crucify his son and thereby 
fulfill God's prophetic uh, and accomplish his plan to save human beings for all eternity. Interesting verse, Isaiah 53.10 says, But the Lord, God the Father, was pleased, pleased to crush Jesus, Messiah, putting him to grief. Ultimately, the Jews didn't put Jesus on the cross. Gentiles didn't put Jesus on the cross. The Father put the Son on the cross to save Jews and Gentiles from their sins for all eternity. Now, the book of Isaiah was written in between 740 and 701, cut number of centuries, obviously 700 years plus before Christ came. And chapter 53 prophesies that the Messiah will be pierced. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Now, this is obviously talking about the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lamb of God who died in the place of the sinner. That's called you and me. This piercing of Jesus' hands and his feet and his side was fulfilled at the crucifixion, as prophesied 700 years in advance. But this piercing of the Messiah, the Lamb, is also going to have a prophetic fulfillment in the tribulation, which we don't know when time that will be. At the end of the seven-year tribulation, we do know that Israel, Jerusalem in particular, is going to be attacked by all the nations of the earth. And God is going to send the Holy Spirit to open the nation of Israel's eyes to see that Jesus was their Messiah and to give them a heart of repentance and confession. And when Israel is under attack that threatens their existence, they will cry out for their Messiah to come and save them, and he will come and save them. Zechariah 12, 9 says, And in that day, we're talking right at the end of the tribulation, I, God, will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Without the Holy Spirit to come and bring a sense of recognition that they have sacrificed and crucified their own Messiah, there will be no repentance. And there will be no coming to faith. And that's why we need to be praying day and night for our loved ones who do not know Jesus because if the Holy Spirit doesn't open their eyes, they are not going to be able to see. The Lord will have to literally open their eyes, and that's the only reason you and I came to faith, is the Lord opened our eyes to see the truth. So when the Romans didn't break Jesus' legs, but did pierce his side, they fulfilled two prophecies at once, completely without awareness. That's another demonstration of the providence of God over every aspect of Jesus' death. Today, we look around the world... And it's terribly easy to think this place is out of control. Human beings are not sovereign creatures. God does not delegate us the right to run his universe. He is in charge of his universe. He does give us moral free will for which we are accountable. But he uses even evil decisions of Roman soldiers who are trying to kill the Son of God 
to accomplish his eternal purposes. Verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Luke 23.50 says, another version, And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consulted to their plan and action, a man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Here's our principle. God arranged for two fearful yet faithful men to give his son an honorable burial, thereby fulfilling biblical prophecy. God arranged for two fearful yet faithful men to give his son an honorable burial, thereby fulfilling biblical prophecy. Now, Joseph of Arimathea is mentioned in all four Gospels, only in connection with the burial of Jesus. We don't know where Arimathea is located, but each one of the Gospel writers gives us a little different perspective on this man. Mark 15, 43 tells us that Joseph was not only a member of the Sanhedrin, that's the ruling Jewish Supreme Court, there's 70 members plus the high priest, he was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. He was in a leadership position inside that legislative body. Unlike the Sanhedrin, though, Luke tells us that Joseph was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was eagerly expecting the Messiah to appear. Luke also notes that Joseph did not consent to the Sanhedrin's plan to execute Jesus. Remember, we're now Friday, a little after 3 p.m. Friday morning, back the clock up about 14 hours, to 1 a.m., Caiaphas, the high priest, called an emergency meeting of the Sanhedrin shortly after Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he called them to have a trial, and more importantly, a sentencing of Jesus to death. This was a last-minute emergency meeting called by Caiaphas of the Sanhedrin, as possible some members could not attend. It's likely that Joseph and possibly Nicodemus were not at that meeting. You say, how do we know that? Well, Mark 14.64 tells us that the vote to execute Jesus that night by the Sanhedrin was unanimous. Unanimous. And John tells us he didn't consent to it. So we're assuming either he was there and he didn't consent, which it wouldn't be unanimous, or he was simply was not there because the meeting was held at 1 a.m. and he was not available at that point in time. Now, Matthew 27 tells us that Joseph was rich, but more importantly, it tells us he was a disciple of Jesus. Sometime during Jesus' ministry, Joseph came to faith in Christ, even though John tells us he kept his faith a secret. Now, sequentially, sometime after 3 p.m., the Jewish leaders go to Pilate and say, we need to break the legs of these crucified victims, speed up their death, get them off the cross, sunset's coming. After that, it appears that Joseph, it says he gathered up his courage, went to Pilate and requested the body of Jesus. Now, going to Pilate required courage because he knew that the Sanhedrin would find out. He's not going to do this on the sly. They're going to find out. 
Interesting historical sources tell us that this request to take down the body of Christ did lead to Joseph's rejection by the Sanhedrin, and he ultimately spent time in prison for it. So following Jesus is costly. There is no cost-free discipleship. You want some perspective on that? Missionary Jim Elliott gave us a classic line. He said, quote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You and I are old enough to know the truth of that. There is less and less and less in this life, and you're not going to hang on to any of it because there's no hearse pulled into you all. doesn't happen. Everything here stays here. So once Pilate had confirmed with the centurion that Jesus really was dead, he gave Joseph permission uh, to bury Christ. And he probably did this as a way to spite the Jews. The Jewish religious leaders wanted to discredit Jesus. And there would be no greater humiliation than to throw Jesus' body on the city dump in Gehenna, over the wall, right? On the city dump where all the fires were. Pilate to spite them, allow Joseph to give Jesus a dignified and honorable burial. I mean, you can imagine the scene. Joseph goes to Calvary and with Nicodemus' help, lowers the cross, probably pulls Jesus' wrists through the nails and his feet, takes off the crown of thorns, covers Jesus' body, takes it away. These men were motivated, obviously, by love for Jesus and their desire to give him an honorable and dignified funeral. And we see God's providence at work through this. Joseph and Nicodemus are exercising their own free will. And by exercising their own free will, they're accomplishing prophecy and God's plan. Because the Holy Spirit had already predicted the specifics of Messiah's burial in Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, 9. His grave, Messiah's grave, was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Most people that were crucified were criminals. Jesus was treated as a criminal. He was executed as a criminal between two other criminals. Most people who were crucified were buried with other criminals in common graves or they were dumped on the dump. However, Jesus was not a criminal. He was obviously innocent. And that's why God planned 700 years earlier, actually from all eternity, for Christ to be buried in a rich man's tomb. And God is going to accomplish that plan using two fearful and yet faithful men. We first meet Nicodemus in John as he comes by night to Jesus in John 3. And he's intrigued by Jesus, doesn't understand it. And Jesus tells him, you must be born again. And Jesus called him the teacher of the law, not a teacher of the law, the teacher of the law. He may have been the master teacher, the national expert on Old Testament scripture in the entire land. Now, Joseph and Nicodemus are both prominent members of the Sanhedrin, and they obviously know each other as colleagues. At some point in Christ's ministry, they must have talked privately and concluded that Jesus was, in fact, Israel's promised Messiah. Now, earlier, we know that Nicodemus was coming to this conclusion because in John 7, he defended Jesus by reminding the Sanhedrin, you can't condemn 
a man without doing your homework, bringing charges, documenting those charges without a thorough investigation, John 751. What I never saw before until this week was that Joseph and Nicodemus must have been planning for some time how to give Jesus a proper funeral. Look, it's Passover week. You don't locate 65 to 75 pounds of really precious spices at the last minute. This takes some planning. So they must have, at some point in time, felt that the execution of Christ was going to happen, and they had to prepare for that at that point. Joseph must have been the one to have political connections with Pilate because he went to Pilate. The disciples were in hiding. There was no one else to accomplish the burial of Christ. If they hadn't gone, Jesus would have been dumped probably in Gehenna at that point in time. In the past, both Joseph and Nicodemus had been clerical Christians. Now, if, you, if you're my age, you remember there used to be an old uh, clerical ad for hair color. used to say, quote, only a hairdresser knows for sure, right? Clerical Christians are secret agent Christians. They're so quiet about their faith that only God knows for sure whether they belong to him or not, right? But somewhere between John 3 and John 19, Nicodemus has become a disciple of Christ. So is Joseph. And the events of Christ's death have moved both Joseph and Nicodemus to go public with their commitment to Christ. So Joseph goes to Pilate. Nicodemus locates 65 pounds of myrrh and aloes. That was a substantial outlay, but it was also a huge amount of spices, which reflects the esteem that they had for Jesus. Now, myrrh is a very fragrant, gummy resin. comes out of the myrrh tree, and they dry it and crush it and turn it into a powdered form. It's a very gummy uh, powder resin. And aloes they get from sandalwood. Both of these are very aromatic spices. They're very... Scented, very strong scents, and they would cover the body with aromatic spices to dry it out and to lessen the stench of, of decay and putrefaction. Now, the Jews' embalming practices were very different from the Egyptians. The Egyptians did formal embalming. When you died, they removed all your internal organs. The Jews didn't do that. The Jews, uh, the Jewish culture, burial involved putting the body on a board, a large board, and they bathed the body in lukewarm water. Uh, they meticulously cleaned and groomed the body of the deceased. They showed utmost respect and honor uh, for the, uh, the life of the person who's gone on to heaven. And the body was then wrapped in white linen strips, and they began with the feet, and they wrapped up to the armpits. They tied the legs together. Uh, between the folds, the strips, they would place these aromatic spices and powders, the arms were placed by the side, and they were wrapped to the torso, and then the head had a separate wrapping. Jesus had no funeral. No hymns were sung. No eulogy was given. No prayer offered. No sermon preached. His disciples didn't even show up. Only Joseph, Nicodemus, and some very, very faithful women who had stayed with Jesus from the time he was crucified until now. And yet, Christ was buried exactly as God had specified. Verse 41. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. 
Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Here's the principle. God made sure that Jesus was buried before sunset on Friday so that he would fulfill prophecy by spending three days in the grave. God made sure that Jesus was buried before sunset on Friday so that he would fulfill prophecy by spending three days in the grave. Now John notes that there just happened to be a garden nearby. And there just happened to be an unused tomb in the garden. Now those are not coincidences. Those are divinely planned, providential acts of God to ensure that his divine will for the burial of his son took place precisely on schedule. Matthew 27, 60 says that Jesus was buried in Joseph's own tomb, the tomb he had prepared for his own burial. Most tombs were carved out of limestone. That was the rock there. And they would go into the side of a mountain and they would hew out of limestone rock, a, a cave, if you will. And the tomb was owned by generations of families. I mean, they were used and reused and used and reused. Each tomb had at least one shelf that was carved into the rock walls. Uh, after death, they would place their wrapped body on the shelf, and they would wait about a year, uh, plus or minus, until the flesh had decomposed. And then they would take the bones, paste them in an ossuary. Uh, that's a, a box for bones. You can see some below. And they would store the bones. And then the shelf would be available for the next family member to die, and they would repeat that process. See, in our uh, culture, we are so um, separated from the realities of life and death that we don't deal with that. In that era, you had a family member die, you prepared the body. There was very much a hands-on awareness of the realities of life and death. Now, Nicodemus and Joseph are in a hurry. Time is of the essence. The sun is setting, and the Sabbath began at sunset about 6 p.m. on Friday night. When the sun went down, Friday night ended, and Shabbat, Sabbath, began. No work. When the sun goes down, everything's got to cease. God commanded, you're hanging on a tree. You had to be buried before sunset, or the land's defiled. So they're hurrying. Far beyond their individual schedules, far beyond the land being defiled, God is superintending their actions to guarantee that Jesus gets buried while it is still Friday. Friday ends at sunset. Saturday begins at sunset. Jesus said, I will spend three days in the grave. Now, in Jewish thought, any part of a day constitutes a full day. So God made sure that was Jesus was in the tomb before sunset on Friday, and so Friday was day one of his burial. He was in the grave all day Saturday. That was day two. He rose sometime very early Sunday morning. Sunday was day three. So we see God's sovereign providential control over the precise timing of Jesus' burial and his resurrection. Psalm 16.10 says, For you, God, will not abandon my, Jesus, soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Jesus was going to be buried but he would not stay and decay in the tomb. He would be raised on the third day. Now Matthew 27 tells us that Joseph had a large, heavy, wheel-shaped stone rolled in front of the mouth of the tombs. What they would do is they... It took a lot of work, by the way, to carve stones shaped like wheels. 
and they would carve a groove, a track, and they would roll this stone on the track to close it and open it. And it would take multiple men, strong men with levers usually to roll the stone away and unseal the tune or roll it back and steal it, seal it. And you say, why? Why were they so concerned with security? Well, back in the day, grave robbing was big business. Many, many people were buried with their valuables, and people would, if they could get into the tomb, they would get into the tomb, and they would steal the valuables, or at the very least, they'd steal the spices. Very, very expensive spices required for embalming. Furthermore, the body had to be protected from animals. So you, you wanted a secure tomb, so you would have a multi-hundred pound, perhaps even as much as a ton or two, rock that you'd roll in front of that. This was such a big rock, remember, we'll find out next week, the, the, the women that were coming to the tomb said, how's going to roll away the stone for us? We can't handle this stone. Now, both Gospels, John specifically, and also, I believe, Matthew, note that several women stayed with Jesus while he was on the cross, and they also stayed and watched Joseph and Nicodemus take Jesus' body down from the cross. They watched Joseph and Nicodemus preparing his body for, for burial, and they noted where he was laid. Why was that important? Because they were going to come back Sunday morning with their own spices. And they were going to complete the preparation of Jesus' body. This burial and this preparation took place in a tremendous hurry to get Jesus in the ground before Sunday. And the women said, we are going to prepare additional spices and we're going to anoint Jesus' body with that. Matthew 27 records an additional fact that will become incredibly significant. It's the day after Jesus' death. He's in the ground. It's Saturday. It's Shabbat, which means it's a holy day, no work. And Matthew 27 says the chief priests and the Pharisees have a meeting with Pilate. Number one, they're doing business, they're doing work, and number three, they're in a Gentile palace, which means they are now ceremonially defiled, and they're breaking every Sabbath rule that they tell everybody else to keep. Why? Well, somebody on the Sanhedrin had a nightmare. They remembered that Jesus said, I'm going to rise from the dead in three days. Remember at the beginning of his public ministry? He predicted that his three-day burial and resurrection was the sign of his divine authority over the temple of God. Remember, they had the money changers and the animal stalls, and he, beginning of his ministry, he cleaned it all out. He got a cat of nine tails, and he said, this is a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of thieves. He's saying, I have authority over this temple. I am the Lord of this temple. And the Jews accost him in John 2.18, by the way, anytime John says the word Jews, he's talking about Jewish religious leaders. He's talking about the Sanhedrin. The Jews then said to him, quote, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things, cleaning out the temple? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Matthew records in Matthew 12, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The Jewish religious leaders remembered this. Guess who didn't remember it? The disciples. They didn't remember that. And they came to Pilate and they said, 
you know, he said he was going to rise in three days. We think that Jesus' disciples are going to steal his body and then claim that he rose from the dead in order to fill a prophecy. So we want you to seal the tomb with an official Roman seal. By the way, if you break a Roman seal, that's death penalty. You don't ever break an official Roman seal made of wax. Furthermore, we want to post a contingent of soldiers to guard the tomb for three days to make sure the disciples don't come and steal the body and deceive the public. Pilate says, make the tomb as secure as you know how. And I bet they made it as secure as they knew how. This was a providential, massive error on the part of the Jewish religious leaders. But it was all part of God's providence. It would have been much easier for them if they just left the tomb unguarded. It would have been much easier for them to claim that Jesus' disciples stole the body from an unguarded tomb since the tomb was sealed by Rome, guarded by Roman soldiers, it was not credible for them to say, well, the disciples overpowered this Roman guard and broke the seal and stole the body. That dog is not going to hunt. That, there was no credibility in that. The Jewish leaders planned to keep Jesus in the tomb by guarding it from the outside. They had done no thinking about what was happening on the inside. God providentially used their evil plans to make the case for the resurrection even more compelling, even more ironclad. Now the only way you could explain the empty tomb was by an actual resurrection. So the burial of Christ, as opposed to the resurrection, is much more an illustration of the providence of God, using everyday people in normal course of life making decisions that they think are good or bad at the time, and using, working together all those decisions, even evil one, to ensure that his divine purposes are fulfilled, which he prophesied and put to the prophets to, to write down hundreds of years before, demonstrating that he is, in fact, God, and his word, in fact, is divine. So let's summarize, and then, Tom, you can come lead us in prayer and praise. Point one. God's providence is his active sustenance and governance of all things so that the eternally good purposes are accomplished. Practical application. Some of us this week are probably going to have a good week and some of us are going to have probably not a good week. Right? You're probably going to have both. Some things will happen to you this week that you're going to go, man, God so took care of me. And then some bad things will happen and Satan will go, how's it going? God take care of you this week? Every single thing that occurs in your life comes under the providence of God heading. It doesn't mean it's going to be good. It may be very painful. It may be very stressful. But it's his providence because he is your father and he loves you. And he does everything for the good of his people, the eternal long-term good. So remember God's providence this week. Number two, the providence of God obviously is working, and we see that because Jesus' physical death was documented by Roman soldiers who were expert in execution. We know that Jesus died. There's a lot of witnesses to the fact that he was really dead, and therefore he really rose. Number three, God providentially orchestrated every detail 
so that Jesus' death precisely fulfilled biblical prophecy. Number four, God arranged for two fearful yet faithful men to give his son an honorable burial, which fulfilled biblical prophecy. I want you to note something here, crucial. Being faithful doesn't mean you're always courageous. Being faithful says you're being obedient. Even if you're fearful, even if you're scared, you can still be obedient, right? You're commanded to be obedient. So I put that there intentionally. Fearful, yet faithful. Sometimes we look at this world and we're fearful. We look, man, this place is big and it's large and it's a mess. You can still be faithful and be fearful. You just make sure you fear God more than you fear men and you make sure you're obeying the Lord and he will bring the courage you need to be obedient. He will always give you what you need to be obedient to him, no matter what. And lastly, God made sure that Jesus was buried before sunset on Friday so that he would fulfill prophecy by spending three days in the grave. The providence of God is at work in our lives 24-7. We all experience the providence of God sitting here. That's the providence of God. I would ask you, ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to all the ways he is involved in your life and accomplishing his purposes in and through us. Thank you for listening. Next week, the resurrection. Be here for the resurrection. Love you guys. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.